Welcome to Investment Uncut. In Investment Uncut, we cut through the noise when it comes to investing. We're digging deeper to try and bring clarity to your investment decisions. I'm Dan Mikulskis. And I'm Mary Spencer. Investment Uncut is brought to you by the investment team at LCP. LCP provide investment advice to some of the largest institutional investors in the UK, including pension funds, wealth managers and sovereign funds. Find out more at lcp.uk.com. So today we are talking about investing like an insurer uh, and joining us for that conversation, delighted to welcome CIO of Pension Insurance Corporation, Rob Groves. Rob, welcome. Thank you very much and very pleased to be here. Welcome, Rob. Before we kick off, could you give people, I guess, an overview of what your role involves? Yeah, sure, absolutely. So I'm the CIO of, of Pension Insurance Corporation, or PIC. Um, PIC is a UK insurance company and we do bulk annuities. So we take uh, sort of legacy defined benefit pension funds and take on those assets and liabilities from the pension funds. And on one level, while we kind of we are an insurer, so you know we, we're not like a pension fund, we can't be underfunded, we have to hold capital to make sure we're kind of overfunded. In effect, we're really just an amalgamation of a number of different pension funds. So really, we're a big asset owner. So the, the insurance part is holding capital, the kind of tight regulations that we have, and maybe you know, the, sort of how you measure your success, the kind of financial metrics. But in reality, we're a big asset owner, much like a kind of pension fund. So we've got nearly kind of 50 billion in assets, you know, sort of roughly split, sort of half managed in-house and half managed by kind of external managers. So, you know, my role is kind of manage the investment function, you know, deliver kind of good investment performance, which is actually quite different from what it might be for other investors. We can come on to that later, find kind of new asset classes and kind of make sure, you know, we've got a kind of well-motivated, capable team to manage the portfolio. Oh, that's it. It's really interesting. And, and the phrase investing like an insurer seems to get thrown around a lot sometimes. So I'm really fascinated. Now we've got you here to sort of dig into that a little bit more in a sec. But before we do that, why don't you just tell us one thing we should know about you that we wouldn't find on your LinkedIn profile? Yeah, that's an interesting one because as an actually with a background, then moving to investment, I'm not, not the most interesting of people. <laughs> but I actually even found that I came up with two things, guys. So one, which is in my teenage years, I made a century break at snooker. So I was a big kind of sneaker fan. So that's, ah, that's something I'm proud of. And it's not something I'm kind of less proud of. But I always sort of answer these questions you know, when I'm asked about to taste something interesting myself. Is that when I was a kid, I managed to swallow a cream egg whole. So, <laughs> now, so I, went, I, went quite, I went quite the top off. My brother just kind of knocked my hat. So I almost choked on. So it's quite something I'm quite proud of now, bizarrely. Was that a hospital visit? Or? It wasn't actually a hospital. Well, it was one of those ones that was in the moment. So you were going to kind of either swallow it or kind of choke there and then. And luckily, it's what I managed to swallow it. Gosh, I think the lesson of the story is not to eat a cream egg near your brother, right? Exactly. So should we get to it? Rob, Let's I guess, it. really high level question. So you're investing the insurer assets to back the pensions that you're now covering. What's the kind of, you know, high level philosophy? What are you trying to achieve? What traps do you fall into? That sort of thing. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the sort of really interesting things that kind of separates an insurer, particularly an annuity writer, perhaps other investors, is you, you'll hear so many people talk about, oh, we're long-term investors. And, and some of them are, and some of them kind of just sort of mean that, but say that, but oh, really, because actually they're measuring themselves on a mark-to-market basis. And I think one of the things that really kind of sort of differentiate us and therefore sort of helps guide the investment philosophy is we really just don't care about market values. So when I'm talking about our kind of portfolio, so our, we roughly kind of call it, you can split it into our matching adjustment portfolio. So that's the assets we put to pay pensions. And then the other portfolio is really just kind of capital and surplus at a simplistic level. That's the way to think of it. 
books. And about 80% of the books are matching adjustment portfolio. And genuinely, I couldn't even tell you what the performance on that portfolio was last quarter. We don't measure it because what we're doing is buying cash flows. So we really care about, I guess, the price we pay for those assets. And we really care about, A, are they going to default? And hopefully you've got a really good quality portfolio. So you should have little to no defaults in an annuity portfolio, but also kind of downgrades because downgrades tell you defaults more likely and therefore you have to have more regulatory capital. So that's the kind of key thing. We're trying to find really good assets that kind of long-term, like stable cash flows, typically with some kind of security behind, some kind of government kind of backing, and will look, you know, fairly agnostic to where we kind of invest geographically to kind of meet those aims. But really, it just really isn't about kind of, you know, when people kind of say like spreads have gone out. Actually, do you know what? If anything, I want the value of my portfolio to fall, right? And the reason for that is if credit spreads widen, actually it's easier for us to write new business with pension fund clients you know we can offer more attractive pricing so you're in this sort of slightly bizarre position of being quite quite happy that your portfolio falling in value now at some point there's a real kind of signal that you're going that works on a macro level it doesn't work on, a, on an idiosyncratic level because you know it spreads on a particular bond as well yeah, it's probably something that's happening to that particular bond while talking on a macro level so that's probably i guess the sort of big difference and probably the sort of almost like guiding philosophy we're all we're just trying to buy secure cash flows so to encourage yourselves not to get focused on the short-term performance, you, you said you couldn't say what the, the sort of mark-to-market type performance had been. I guess, would that be a sort of tip that you'd give then to other long-term investors? Actually, don't distract yourself. The thing that matters to you is defaults. Therefore, that's the thing you measure. And you don't bother to measure the things that you actually, when you think about it, don't care about. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of it's kind of convenience for us, though, isn't it? Because our financial success is not driven by the market value of our portfolio. And therefore, we don't focus on it, right? But I mean, even if you were an endowment, you know, with a really long-term philosophy, you are still, you know, ultimately the kind of success of that portfolio is going to be driven by, you know, what's the market value and how much you can distribute to kind of do, you know, whatever the, you know, the aims of the endowment are. So I think it's actually really difficult. I think it's more of a kind of a quirk. But yeah, you shouldn't kind of get too focused on it in the short term. I think it's sort of one of the... You, you look at kind of credit spreads and kind of say how much information, for example, really is there about the risk of, you know, of the credit market. Well, you kind of, you know, lived through last year and you kind of saw what happened to credit spreads and the journey we went on. And like, you know, I suppose my point would be you might have got to September and like, you know, spreads have gone up here. You've been on this big roller coaster. Suddenly spreads were barreling in. Right. And I bet my question was, did you feel good about the world at that point? No vaccines. There is some information in credit spreads, but often it's dominated by many kind of other things. So that's why you perhaps shouldn't focus on those things too much. Yeah. It's super interesting because I often insurers can often be characterized, I find, by other people as sort of subject to an awful lot of regulation that constrains the way they invest is often the characterization of it. So it's really interesting to hear you say that actually it's almost the opposite. It's almost you can be more long-termist about things because uh, I suppose the regulation is focusing you on the cash flow element of it not the portfolio performance element of it. And I suppose another way of saying what you sort of just saying was that because those investment objectives are kind of, they come all the way from the top, if you like, from the, the very definition of your financial success is not based on portfolio performance. And so that's really helpful for the way you can then look at portfolios. What you're saying though is absolutely right, Dan. I mean, we, the regulation, we're incredibly, sorry, the amount of regulation we have is incredibly high. So but it's almost kind of like a, a kind of checklist of things. So, you know, on a, we have to kind of meet regulations, not just in aggregate, 
because there's some there, but it's literally on an asset by asset basis. You'll hear insurers or annuity writers saying, I can't invest in that. It's not MA eligible. And it's one of the things that we've been kind of campaigning to change that actually these things should be done at kind of a portfolio level rather than an individual asset level. Now, most of these regulations are actually really are there to, for policy architecture. It's actually there for really good reasons. It's just are they being kind of implemented in a sort of sensible, pragmatic way? But yeah, you're right. You do. I'm not sure I would say that the regulations kind of make you that kind of long-term investor. I think it's almost just the, kind of the nature of the nature of an annuity book. So, Rob, you just mentioned the sort of measure of success not being portfolio performance. Can you give us a feel for the sort of, I guess, almost things that have gone very well and things that have gone less well for you over the years and, and how you characterise those things? Yeah, how would I? I mean, actually, one thing I'll add, which is going to slightly undermine all my previous arguments, is we do actually have a small alternative portfolio in our surplus assets, which we very much run on a total return basis. So that part of the portfolio you know, kind of is very much like, you know, you'd think of any other kind of investor. So and we do care about the market value there, but it's just, it's a very small part of the portfolio. I mean, I guess what sort of works well, I mean, I think you know, number one, I'm trying to ensure good investment performance is high, great people. Just There is literally nothing better you can do than kind of that. Then it's things like, you know, making sure absolutely you're just focusing on things that you understand. And we get sent to a kind of a plethora of like individual investment opportunities. So it could be a fund level, it could literally be a sort of trade idea. Said tons of stuff on crypto. I just like don't know anything about it, don't understand it, kind of don't believe in it, so don't invest in it, right? Or might be kind of sent to you know stuff in the kind of commodity space with some kind of arbitrage, right? And I just look at those things and I'm like, you know, as a sort of slightly kind of naive newbie to this, that looks interesting, but I just have no edge, right? No one in the team has an edge on that, so just don't touch it. So you know, invest in things that you kind of understand. I think you've got to sort of trust your gut, but sort of sometimes. So. I always kind of feel people overstate sort of the importance of their investment view, right? So like, you know, you might be talking about where the yield curve is going to be. I've never met anyone in over 20 years who've got any accurate view on where the yield curve is going to go. It's just too many variables kind of driving it. But you'll have a lot of people who just state with like just complete confidence and sound really convincing about where what's going to, where, where they're going to be losing the yield curve. But, you know, things like, your ability to kind of, when you're sort of meeting, so if you're going to invest in a fund, you're perhaps talking to like, you know, the manager of that fund. And if there's like, you know, some of their answers just not convincing, you're just kind of feeling a bit uncomfortable about it. That is just huge red flashing warning signs to walk away. And I, and I can think of an earlier role actually with, a, with an ILS fund where when I sort of joined the institution, they were an investor in that fund and they've done incredibly well for them. So it's kind of hailed as this, oh, you I love this investment role. We've had it for kind of a few years. And, you know, first meeting with the manager was like, oh, God. you know, if this was a new meeting, this is like, I wouldn't touch this guy with a barge pole. And actually, you know, sometime later, that small investment ended up going quite wrong. Um, so there definitely is something about kind of trusting your gut, I think, in terms of the sort of assessing kind of personalities. Yeah, you've definitely got to have an open mind. And I think if you've got, and it's sort of back to my point I was saying about if you've got kind of really good people, they'll convince you. Right. So as, as long as you're not one of these people who's kind of like, you know, you've sort of made a view and then you're like, well, I'm going to stick to that view regardless. If you're kind of open minded and you'll get there in the end, you've got a good team. That beautifully, I think, moves us to the next area I was hoping to explore, which is all to do with, I guess, decision making. So you've already mentioned the importance of having a good team, but I guess thinking about making decisions, making decisions as a group, different voices in the room. How do you make sure that your decision making is robust? Yeah. So. I've got kind of some quite strong views on this stuff. I think particularly around 
the way investment committees work, and particularly around the way investment committees work where there's an in-house investment team, which I guess is kind of sort of slightly different to you know sort of many many kind of pension funds out there. So I kind of firstly think you've got to have like kind of inclusive open culture within the team, which kind of encourages people to kind of challenge. There's absolutely no issue with just saying, yeah, you spent three months working on that. I just hate it. Like, and here's why I hate it. And that's the most important thing to kind of, and it is, that is a difficult culture to create because it, because, you know, momentum builds, you know, we did it, we did it the other day, actually, we were looking at sub IG infra debt and it was just like, you know, some of the teams spent ages looking at this and then, you know, someone else on the team was just like, there's not enough return in there. You know, the assets are too kind of concentrated. If literally one of these things blows up, you're going to kill your returns in the whole asset class for like 10 years. And, you know, it's quite hard for the person who's been researching that and is kind of quite, you know, really into it. But actually, it's just right. So you've got to have that kind of culture. Then I kind of think that the investment team shouldn't be bringing options to an investment committee. I'm a kind of firm believe that you have to kind of own the strategy you deliver it and you kind of say, this is what we're doing, this is why. So I think that's really important. And I think that the kind of point about sort of avoiding groupthink is about having external members of the committee and who are sort of have a lot of investment knowledge but are in a different area to you. So kind of examples I'd give, we had Danny Truel, who was the CIO of the Wellcome Trust, and he was also a co-founder of PIC. And you know, very much focused on kind of equity investing, private equity, commodities, and wasn't an insurance person at all. So didn't get a matching adjustment, didn't get like, you know, capital. But just that kind of really really strong personality. And actually what was great with him is he would just like cut through the, the BS, frankly, and just be like, you've just gone down a rabbit hole here and you're just talking nonsense, guys. So someone who's kind of strong expertise but not directly in so someone who's almost consciously not going to group think because they do a different job than you and they think about the world differently with a strong personality that's the kind of so i think you kind of need those people and they are there to you know to kind of challenge you or support you how do you find those roles in terms of like on an ongoing basis and and i guess another question is it important in your mind to rotate those those people that are offering that sort of separate view to be honest, on the rotation point, I haven't kind of thought about it. You know, we had Danny with us for a number of years. You know, unfortunately, tragically died in 2019. So, and then we've had a kind of, a, you know, new members kind of since then. He's been kind of, you know, done a sort of fantastic role. As right, you're right. I think you do get at some point you get a bit stale, and probably even if you're attending a weekly investment committee, maybe you start drinking the Kool Aid a bit potentially. So I think it's a it's a kind of good point. Sorry, I can't remember your second question. How do you find that person that has the alternative? Yeah, I mean, it's just. Yeah, well, I mean, with us, with Danny, it was easy to see this. He was the kind of co-founder of this, this kind of network, really. I don't think there's any sort of special secret to that. I think it's sort of, you know, looking hard and being lucky. Yeah. It's, it's super interesting because you've given some really practical insights there into something that's often talked about at a sort of more more kind of general level. And, and that tension you talk about between an in-house investment team and an investment committee, I think it is, is quite a common one, actually. And it is really difficult because the team is always going to be so much closer to everything than the committee is. And, and there's often a real difficulty of getting the right people in the right roles, I think, and the right hats on, so to speak, and that you don't want the investment committee trying to redo what the team has done or second guess it at that level and but yet there's still some very valuable role they can play at a sort of a higher level so i, I do think a lot of certainly a lot of investors i see do struggle with those roles a little bit and like you say is the team bringing options who's the exec sort of thing in that whole structure yeah i think one of the things is so particularly difficult and maybe for you know kind of pension funds where they have the 
responsibility for the investment decisions much more kind of obviously than I, than I think within say an insurance company where it's clearly the investment executive that have the sort of responsibility for the decisions but the investment committee is there to kind of check that they're doing you know taking sensible decisions I think being a pension trustee is is a tough one but I mean ultimately I don't think it changes things that much you, again you need to go back to that point of having a really strong team Moving on then, yeah, really keen to hear, we're going to get to things you're worried about in the next 12 months in a sec, but actually maybe before we go there, big changes and trends you've seen in the investment industry over the last sort of decade, couple of decades, really interested to hear your take on that. Oh, well, a couple of decades, I was more thinking the last year, but yeah, let's say, I mean, <laughs> no, I mean, things I was like, yeah, things I kind of write about, things like, you know, ESG, so, I mean, I don't, I don't know about you guys, I, I barely have a conversation that doesn't mention ESG now. I actually think that's a bit of, and that's great. It's great that we're doing that. It was one of the points I was going to try and make to you, though, and it's sort of related to one of my other kind of points is this thing, you know, there's a trend about liquid assets. And I think there's there's a bit of a laziness in the investment industry with some of the kind of terminology we've used. And I use a liquid assets and ESG as kind of good examples of those. And that's because I always find it a bit odd that there's the G in ES and G, because I always kind of think, you know, if you were investing in, you know, the most sort of, I don't know, horrible company that was producing landmines, you'd want them to be well governed, wouldn't you? You know, so I always kind of find it slightly odd that sort of just in my personal I get why it's there, but I think governance is a kind of much sort of kind of bigger issue. And the other one I, another example I'd give is, you know, liquid assets, which has been a huge trend over the past ten years, you know, both across kind of equity and debt. I think that that term in the insurance industry and the annuity industry is used far too lazily. So we all talk about You'll hear insurers talk about, well, they want to increase their allocation to illiquid assets and they're trying to source more illiquid assets. And they don't really want to source more illiquid assets. They're trying to source more assets with you know, attractive risk return characteristics. And they sort of happen to be perhaps in the loan space or kind of some kind of structured opportunity rather than a, than a kind of corporate bond. But we just sort of literally bifurcate the market into liquid and illiquid assets, which is kind of nonsense, but it's literally a kind of a, it's a, it's shades of grey the whole way. And I guess particularly for you as such a long-term investor, you kind of don't care about the, the liquidity yeah, to sell I mean, the asset itself. Well, you do care about it. I think you've got much more of an appetite for liquidity because of you're that long-term investor. But, but ultimately, liquidity gives you optionality. So I think it's a little bit lazy to kind of say you don't care about kind of illiquidity. You definitely kind of want, you, don't, you wouldn't want your whole portfolio to be kind of illiquid, in my view. And actually, I think kind of commercially, if you can be commercially successful with a decent allocation to more liquid credit by corporate bond portfolios, you've got much more optionality in the future, actually, to yeah, earn more interesting returns. It's a really good way of looking at it, Rob, and I'm, I'm glad you said that point about the laziness. I tend to agree that often you, you almost get this, in my view, a slightly perverse logic that people say, well, illiquid things ought to have a higher return because they're illiquid, and so they do have a higher return, and so we're going to go and look for illiquid things because they've got higher returns sort of thing. You somehow get caught in that, which to my view is just a real fuzzy logic kind of a trap to get into and sort of get away from. But I suppose as consultants, you know, we as anyone maybe have to hold our hands up in creating these buckets that we want to put the whole world into. So I think we've got to be careful in criticising other people as much as us maybe there. Yeah, look, we all do it. We do it internally. It's more of a kind of, because you're right, you know, everyone works for shorthand, don't they? It's just that's, You that's have to, you have it. to. It's a complicated yeah. world, isn't it? But I think, you know, sometimes you can, you know, sort of, on one hand, say like the PRA and the annuity industry is very focused on what are the downsides of all these annuity rights is holding significant illiquid assets. And it's a little bit of a frustration from my perspective also because, A, they're not all illiquid, the shades of grey, and B, it's kind of like it's focusing on one attribute of the asset class when you might sort of say, oh, oh you know, how do we feel about annuity rights as having significant allocations to 
assets with great covenant packages and secured on great quality collateral. It's not quite as punchy in the, but you know, <laughs> like, it's a classic attribute that we more like to focus on rather than just purely the whether I can sell it next week or not. You mentioned just then covenants, and I guess that's something that we sort of, from time to time, we hear about, or, you know, are the covenants weakening on, to use the broad term, illiquid assets. Are those sorts of trends things that you're very much focused on, and, and what's your experience been in, in those sorts of areas? Yeah, I think how I would, so we have some, what you call more traditional direct lending funds within our surplus assets, so not backing our pension liabilities, and so, you know, kind of, the, yeah, lending to kind of sponsors, typically some investment grade. I would. 100% agree that kind of lending conditions in that in that market have kind of deteriorated and you know we get a plethora of people who kind of tell you that the stuff that we do to back our pension liabilities with our in-house team is quite a different market so it's kind of more long dated investment grade and actually it's much easier to kind of negotiate good quality covenants and you know appropriate protections and kind of security within those deals I mean clearly the, the spread you are earning is materially less you know, let, let's be kind of clear. So these guys now are probably borrowing at, at kind of historically cheap levels. So you've got a bit more, got a bit more ability to kind of get a you know, decent, decent covenant package. Yeah. Okay. Dan mentioned we were going to ask you what you're sort of most focused or, or worried about in the next twelve months, and I wonder if we can ask it twice. Can we ask it about the the assets that are backing pensions, and can we also ask it separately about your alternatives? No, absolutely. I mean, to actually, do you know what? They're not. They're not totally different though, because you know, if you have, if COVID, you know, doesn't go the way that we'd all hope it to go in terms of the sort of return to normality and kind of developed markets and then hopefully the rest of the world, you know, you will see an increase in kind of downgrades and even in investment grade kind of portfolio. So that, you know, that's absolutely kind of number one for me. And it's the most difficult thing to kind of work through. You can kind of imagine that in annuity rights, you know, in annuity portfolios, you'll have things like most or most or many annuity writers will have kind of exposure to airports, right? And they would have been seen almost like utility-like investment opportunities. They're actually held up pretty well through the crisis. They've, you know, ultimately kind of with a sort of short to medium term time horizon will be fine. But, you know, they've got to kind of navigate their way through through the crisis over the coming sort of months and years. So that's like, I personally as an investor kind of struggle to see beyond kind of COVID. You know, you could talk about kind of inflation, you can talk about what's going to come out to rates you can talk about you know, just like markets being overvalued and like does the fed kind of taper too quickly all those things but it's just to me it's all dominated but you know this it's difficult to look at anything put in episode beyond personal or professional life beyond covid for me and is the tension there for you as, as often as a cash flow sort of debt investor that bizarrely with all those risks there things are sort of priced you might say priced for perfection in some of those markets you've got these quite tight spread levels in, in some of these these debt markets 100%. I mean, it's this sort of just this, and it's the point I was making before about sort of roller coaster ride of spreads last year. And you, you kind of look at it now and you just think, well, you know why it is, because it's just the wall of money that's been kind of injected into the kind of financial system. But it's kind of quite difficult, actually, as, a, as an investor in some of those markets to kind of justify investing them. So, you know, in my five years, five, six years at PIC, I mean, one of the things that we did was just have big allocation to US corporate bonds because we, yeah, effectively, we kind of price every deal up on almost like an ISIN by ISIN, loan by level basis. And we just get better risk adjusted retort rewards by investing in US credit, even after all the costs of hedging and could in sterling. You know, that opportunity is just completely gone. It's difficult to justify investing in kind of in US corporate bonds or even actually in the corporate bond market kind of sort of generally. But, you know, if you're investing in the liquids and maybe you're only getting a small pickup, it might be like 20 basis points. 
But actually, with spreads this compressed, actually that 20 basis points as a portion of the total return becomes really important. You know, to your point, it's with your almost like, you know, your macro view of the world, you'd look at kind of spreads and just say the world's gone mad. But clearly, there's other things going on that have driven it there. So, Rob, as we get towards the end of this episode, what one thing do you want listeners to take away from this discussion? Thanks, Mary. Yeah, I think it's this point around, you know, really as an annuity writer, not being focused on market values, not knowing, you know, we don't have to look at, you know, what's happened to the portfolio this quarter, this year. And it's really just that absolute focus on credit quality over the very long term. I think that's a big differentiator between us and perhaps, you know, the rest of the institutional investor universe. Fantastic. And I guess there's a really nice message in there about focusing on what matters, whichever investor type you are. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And Rob, what do you think is the most underappreciated thing about investing? Yeah, I guess it's a kind of a few things I kind of think about it. And again, maybe touches on one of the sort of points we kind of spoke about earlier, which is, you know, the amount of times that we'll kind of spend talking to economists or you'll get kind of investment banks giving you kind of economist views of this is what's going to happen to the kind of real economy. Actually, sort of the correlation between that and returns in the market is like, you know, pretty ropey. I mean, I mean clearly it must be there. Like, it just must be in the long term. But, you know, so I think you can almost kind of like over-focus on, on that stuff. And it sort of relates to that point that that sort of connection between kind of, I guess, price and risk. So that point of you'd look at the world now and you'd look at where credit spreads are, and you'd kind of say, well, the world must be kind of in a pretty good place, right? Because, you know, credit spreads, are, and it's just kind of, it's kind of not the case. So those are kind of things which I probably think are kind of overstated. I mean, the, the underappreciated one is actually another um, overemphasized point I would think about. This, I still think about even now there's this sort of cult personality in investing where we kind of just sort of buy into, you know, certain investors, kind of what they do. And, then, you know, we've all kind of been there in these sort of meetings with kind of investors and they've just got this amazing pattern. Really. Kind of, you, just, you just believe it. It just sounds so convincing. You know, you go back afterwards and you kind of realise that that's just good sales kind of technique. So sort of trying to kind of step away from that, I think, is really important. Fantastic. And Rob, finally from me, do you have any recommendations for the listeners? Yeah. So I was having a think, a think about this. And it was obviously a tough, well, an incredibly tough year for, kind of for many people last year. You know, I was doing things to kind of try and improve my mental health. So I kind of tried you know, mindful meditation which for me has been kind of fantastic. So a book I'd recommend, it's got a bit of a long title, it's called Mindfulness, A Practical Guide to Finding Peace in a Frantic World by Mark Williams. And it's a really kind of accessible introduction to sort of mindful meditation. And even better, they do some guided meditations, but they're all available on SoundCloud. So you can kind of go and access them for free. And they're quite short. You know, some of them are sort of five minutes. I think the longest one's about 20 minutes. So if you're sort of interested in kind of exploring that and the kind of benefits of it, it's something I now do every day. It's a, it's a really kind of accessible introduction to mindfulness. I was going to ask as a total beginner, how often should you practice mindfulness? So you're on every day now. I would definitely recommend every day. I and mean, sometimes it might just be five minutes. Right? So it's a really kind of nice thing. So you should try and build it into your, like try and do it before the kind of working day starts. Just genuinely find it quite kind of beneficial. I actually think it helps your professional. It sort of slightly changes how your brain works. And so things like you can sort of just cut through a lot of nonsense and, you know, when you've got an opinion, makes you much more determined to be able to kind of give that opinion in just a calm, measured way. I'm not sure why, but it's just, it's just, it's almost like, you know, physical exercise is good for the body and I'm convinced mindfulness is the equivalent of your brain. 
Yeah, I'm definitely making a note to check that out because I have tried that a little bit and found it generally good, but I haven't been great at, like you say, building it into the start of the working day. I often find myself thinking, oh, I just want to get started. I've got some stuff in my head I want to do. Let's go do it. And it's kind of, you need to take that moment to go back and, and just to stop yourself, don't you? Anyway, we'll put a note for that in the show notes. But Rob, it's been an absolutely great conversation. Thanks so much for joining us today. It's been brilliant. I've really enjoyed it. Thanks so much, guys. Thanks, Rob. So to help us debrief on that really interesting conversation with Rob Groves, we are joined now by Tom Farrell, partner and key member of our longevity de-risking team. Tom, welcome to the podcast. Hello, happy to be here. Tom, so you you sort of work with a number of insurers across the whole market, so you get a lot of insight, I guess, into how all sorts of different insurers operate. How would you reflect on some of, first of all, some of the similarities between how they all work? Yeah, I thought one key point that I thought was quite interesting from that conversation was just, you picked up on it as well, Dan, was just around how performance isn't measured going forward. So that will be consistent across them all, really. I've got a slightly different angle to spin on that, which is whilst ongoing performance isn't that important, isn't measured, the initial yield or the expected performance at the very beginning or at the start of the transaction is very, very important. And that will is what enables insurers to be competitive and that will feed into the, the pricing that, that they can give. So just a slight different angle there on, on where performance is, is important. And I suppose Rob did say that the price they pay for assets is relevant and important, but it's bringing that back to the point you've just made, Tom, which is a very good point in terms of, you know, particularly for clients of ours, for example, that are looking to move into the insurance market. Actually, that price is influenced by the price of the assets the insurer can buy on, on their side. Exactly. And you can translate that into initial yield or into expected performance. So it's more the, the forward looking thing rather than the ongoing performance, which which is I think is quite interesting. And it's interesting, isn't it? Because there is that there's a nuance and it might, might easily be lost. But I mean, insurers aren't simply investing a block of static money to meet their requirements. They're constantly trying to win new business in, in competition against their competitors, which is this kind of processes you're involved in. And so that's what they're quite focused on in terms of the assets that are going to help them bid competitively for those transactions. That's right. And in terms of other stuff, you know, all the matching adjustment bits that he was he was talking about, that's very consistent. That's all driven by regulation. I mean, effectively, what it translates in, they're all looking for some sort of a loan in one form or another, whether that be government, whether that be corporate or whether that be privately structured in, in some sort of way. But it's all about looking for for that type of investment. So those would be the, I'd say, the sort of key similarities across them. And in terms of the specific assets, you know, so you just mentioned they're all looking for some kind of loan, but do you tend to see quite a big divergence between almost how exotic those types of loans are between the different insurers and how clearly they're all under the same regulatory framework, but how far they're able to or willing to push on that? Yeah, absolutely. So what's really interesting is that if you, at a very high level, they all invest in very similar things and you can sort of encapsulate it, if you like, and just calling it a loan. But that's very broad in terms of what can fall under that. When you actually start looking under the bonnet, they actually all do things very differently. So they'll invest in things in different proportions. So, and it can be for lots of different reasons. So some might have a, a much stronger lifetime mortgage business, for example. So they'll have lots more investments there. Or some might be stronger in corporate bonds, for example. They might have lots more in that asset class. Some might use external managers. Some might use, some might do it all internally. Some might even have an asset management arm. So there's all these things going on under the bonnet, which does then mean that it's different in terms of how they structure their own portfolios. And that's a good thing, right, for clients, because that means that 
no matter what markets are doing, it's likely that one insurer might become more competitive or less competitive, depending on what the what the underlying market dynamics are. And Rob said, and I thought it was a really good point, really near, I think, the start of the conversation, that he wouldn't invest in things where he doesn't have an edge. And it kind of repeats stuff that we heard from Richard Williams in the discussion around an open DB scheme. But so if they don't feel they've got an edge, then they won't go in that area because that won't get them good pricing, which they could then not feed through to gain more business, I guess. So it, it does, it comes full cycle, actually, doesn't it, in a sense? It makes a lot of sense. Yeah, it does. Ultimately, they want to try and get the best assets they can to back the deal. And that will mean that they're more competitive. And that means that they can, they can pass on the better pricing to our clients. And that will go around in circles and circles. One thing that always strikes me, because obviously the LCP team put out these annual reports into the de-risking market, and we can drop a link to that in the show notes that sort of tries to profile some of the different asset allocations of the different insurers. One thing that always just strikes me is it's actually how different they are, which I always find quite interesting. So what you're just saying, Tom, I mean, there's obviously always a sense on a lot of cash flow driven investments in there. There's gilts, there's corporate bonds, but there can be, and this came up a little bit, the conversation with Rob, you might have a bit of infrastructure debt in there, you might have lifetime mortgages, you might have more kind of leases, or they do tend to go quite different ways, don't they, in terms of the things that actually make it in the portfolio? That's right, yeah. And the key thing that they're looking for is to have cash flows that they can match against the expected liabilities. Now, whether that comes in the form of an infrastructure debt or a private loan or a corporate bond, they will have flexibility to, to change that up or down depending on where they're seeing the opportunity, where they think their expertise lie you know, where they've got experience and, and that kind of thing. And Rob's approach to having the bulk of the portfolio being the matching adjustment portfolio and then having the alternatives portfolio that's a smaller part that's effectively sort of surplus assets. Is that an approach that's very consistent between insurers or do some of them just say, we invest how we invest, all of our money is effectively in one pot. It might be more than we need for matching adjusting purposes, but that's all we kind of focus on. It is, yeah. It's more driven by regulation. So they'll have their matching adjustment bit and then there's other parts that they need to hold in order to back some of the assets that are in, in that portfolio. And the idea is for an asset to qualify as a for the matching adjustment, it means you have to hold less capital in the other fund, as it were, in order to back that. So if you're holding equities to back your liabilities, you would then need to hold a lot, a lot higher level of capital in the other pot in order to back that because it doesn't qualify for for that matching adjustment. That's the in broad terms how it, how it works. And are, are there different levels? So clearly matching adjustment, you need to be very much risk controlled. But in terms of the other assets held, where f- for pick it sounds like they are willing to go slightly more exotic, if you like, is that quite common to go a bit more exotic in that separate portfolio? That will vary between insurers. We haven't done a lot of work actually going into into what they're holding there. So I've, I've not looked at that in, in detail, but my understanding is that they've got a lot of flexibility as to what, what they'll do and they'll do slightly different things. So it's what are the big trends that you're seeing right now? I mean, clearly we're in a world where spreads, sort of yields on corporate bonds are incredibly low, incredibly tight. So are you seeing that? Well, they've changed a lot over the last year. They were very tight, then they were very wide. Now they're very tight again. Is that coming through in terms of what you're hearing from insurers and how they're allocating? Yeah, that's a, that's another interesting point I picked up there. I think if you would have asked probably all in, or most insurers nine months ago a trend in where they were seeing or where they might be allocating in, in future, I think US credit would have been a very common answer. Whereas now, clearly with spread so low, that picture is, is different. Dare I say, 
illiquid assets seems to be a, a trend amongst most. <laughs> not supposed, might not want to use that exact word, but you know what I mean. Particularly given low spreads, that seems to be an area where they may be able to find better value, higher yields, and, and be able to translate that into more competitive pricing. I think taking a step back, though, and thinking about the sort of market as a whole, one trend that I'm seeing is just annuity books just getting larger and larger. I mean, some of them staggeringly high now, and that's grown quite rapidly over the last few years. You know, we're talking 40, 50, 60 billion, those, those kind of numbers. So more and more going forward, I think it's going to be more and more challenging for them to be able to sort of maintain well-diversified portfolios. They might start having to ask themselves questions such as, how much of that bond am I comfortable holding? Because they are so big now that they might not want to be holding too much of a particular name, for example. And that may then push them to start thinking about different areas, other assets, other asset classes, other regions, perhaps. So that's, I'd say, a key trend that we might see more and more of uh, as we go forward. And there's real takeaways there for other investors as well, I suppose, right? Given, I mean, I think, yeah, Rob referred to 50 billion pounds. I hadn't realized the pick was that big. Obviously, huge books, lots of big transaction volumes. It's a, it's a funny bind, isn't it? Because some other investors might think, well, that all sounds very sensible. I might quite like to invest like an insurer. And then when you think, well, hang on, do I want to be competing against those huge asset pools for exactly the same kind of securities? Maybe I want to invest unlike an insurer, just so I'm going after the stuff they're not going after. And, and because of the regulation, you, you, you can have quite a good idea of what it is they're going after. Exactly. Yeah. So in corporate bonds is the classic example there where you've got insurers investing heavily in them. You've also got central banks investing heavily in them. Uh, So if you do have the freedom to invest elsewhere, it might be one asset class where you think, is now the right time? Or could there be better yields in another market, which has got less massive, massive players playing in it? And slightly less friendly for the insurers from a, a regulatory perspective. Exactly, exactly. That's probably a really nice note to end on, I think, isn't it? Nice summary of, I suppose, Rob covered stuff that he's thinking about for the next 12 months and and you guys have just taken it forward for many, many years. So I think, yeah, let's quit while we're ahead. (laughs) Brilliant. Tom, thanks so much for your time. Thanks, Robert. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Tom. That's it from us this week on Investment Uncut. As a reminder, this was the second episode in our mini-series on how institutional investors invest. If you didn't catch the first one on how big DB, open DB schemes invest with Richard Williams, please check it out. If you like what you hear, please leave us a review. Next week, we'll be joined by Iona Bain, author, blogger, podcaster, and very much focused on how young people invest. So really looking forward to that conversation too. Till then, take care. Our podcast is for information and marketing purposes only and does not constitute any form of investment or financial advice. For more information, please refer to our marketing privacy policy on the LCP website.